Now's the time to take your Bible and open it with me to the book of Acts and the 18th chapter and verse 12. Acts 18.12 for our message from the Word of God this morning. You'll find Acts 18.12 on page 1174 if you're using the old Schofield Reference Bible that we have in the seats. Today's date is February 19th, 2023. Today's text will begin in Acts 18.12 and go on down through verse 23. And the title of this morning's message is The Tale of a Carefree Deputy. The Tale of a Carefree Deputy. And we begin with the story of a deputy. A deputy sheriff who pulled a car over one day and told the driver that he had failed to stop at a stop sign. And the driver said, But I slowed down. The deputy shook his head and said, You have to stop. That's why they're called stop signs. And the driver said, But it's the same thing. And the deputy said, no, it's not. And the driver screamed, yes, it is. Well, at that point, the deputy hauled him out of the car and started wailing on him with his nightstick. And he said, do you want me to stop or just slow down? (laughs) Well, it's an oldie, but apparently some of you hadn't heard it. (laughs) <laughs> or forgot it. Well, speaking of deputies, here in Acts 18, the Apostle Paul is about to meet up with a different kind of deputy because that's what the ancient Greeks called their governors as we see in Acts 18 and verse 12, where Luke writes these words. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to Gallio's judgment seat. Now, Achaia was another name for Greece in those days. And as it says there, Gallio was the deputy of the entire area of Achaia. So these days, we'd call him a governor. And those unsaved Jews who made this insurrection against Paul were the Jews in the Greek city of Corinth where we saw last Sunday the Apostle Paul has just started a church 
Now that word insurrection, by the way, usually refers to a mass uprising of people against the government. But in the dictionary, it can also refer to any mass uprising of people against their enemy. And the reason these unsaved Jews were so riled up is that Paul started that church right next door to their synagogue, as we also saw last Sunday. And people were flocking to that church to get saved instead of flocking to their synagogue to get saved. So these unsaved Jews here were jealous of the popularity of Paul's church. So they decided to bring Paul before this deputy here because in ancient Greece, governors heard court cases. Uh, They didn't have the, the separation between the executive branch like governors and the judicial branch of government like courts like we have in the United States. And we see what the Jews charged Paul with in the next verse of our text in verse 13. Where it says they brought him to the judgment seat saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. Now here we have to ask which law they were talking about. The the law of Moses or the law of the Roman Empire. And you would think they meant the law of Rome because, well, they hauled Paul before a, a Roman governor, right? And there were times when unsaved Jews did accuse Paul of worshiping God contrary to the law of Rome, like you see in your first reference there in Acts 17.7, where some unsaved Jews said, These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, one Jesus. But if that's what they're charging Paul with here, that's not how Gallio took it. As you see in the next three verses of our text, beginning in verse 14. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, having heard the charge against him, he's about to defend himself, he doesn't have to, because Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. If it was a matter of any of those things, I would hear your case, he's telling them. But... In verse 15, if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge 
of such matters. And he drave them from his judgment seat. Now, it's easy to understand why Galileo would have no interest (laughs) in settling religious disputes. I mean, what do you think a judge would say today if our Baptist friends took us to court and said, Your Honor, these grace believers worship God without water baptism. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you could imagine the judge would refuse to hear a case like that, and he would throw it out of court just like Gallio did. But when Gallio said he would be no judge of Jewish words and names, that shows that they were probably charging Paul with the same thing that they charged Stephen with in your next reference in Acts chapter 6, verses 11 and 13, where they, they said... We have heard this guy Stephen speak blasphemous words. Blasphemous words against Moses. And blasphemous words against the law of Moses. And we know that was not true of Stephen. And we know it was not true of Paul. The Apostle Paul, everything he preached agreed with the law of Moses. But they probably charged him with speaking blasphemous words against the law anyway. (laughs) And when Galileo said he would be no judge of names there in verse 15, you know what name those unsaved Jews didn't want to hear. Anybody? The name of Jesus. And Galileo... He probably didn't want to hear them argue about whether this Jesus guy deserved the name of Messiah or Christ. He didn't want to hear any of that stuff. So he drove them from his judgment seat. And I don't know if you've ever seen a judge drive somebody from his judgment seat, but I did about 50 years ago in traffic court. I saw a judge send a man home because he came to court dressed in shorts. It's been 50 years, but in my mind, I can still hear him tell that guy to go home and come back dressed more respectfully. I mean, he was ticked off. And Galio was just as angry here. And you know what? He wasn't the only one who was upset with the Jews that day. All the people in Gallio's courtroom were just as fed up with the Jews that day as we see in the next verse in your Bible, in verse 17. And all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Imagine that going on in a courtroom today. Well, the judge would have the bailiff settle everything down, right? That's not what the rest of that verse says. Gallio cared for none of these things. 
All the Greek citizens in court that day got so mad at the Jews that they started wailing on them. And uh, the leader of the Jews there, and they probably didn't ask if he wanted them to stop or slow down either. They just beating on him. But now, doesn't that seem like kind of an overreaction to you? I mean, all the guy did was waste the court's time, right? And the Greeks, they were pretty famous for being fair in their courtrooms. So I think what you're seeing there is the hatred that Jew, that people have always had for Jews. And Gallio must have had it too because he just let it happen. He didn't care that they were beaten on the leader of the Jews, the chief ruler of the synagogue. That's why I called this message the tale of the carefree deputy. We know that this Sosthenes guy here was the new chief ruler of the synagogue because last week we saw something happen to the old chief ruler, didn't we? Look in your Bible now across the page in verse 8 of Acts chapter 18 where it says that Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and flocked to that church and were baptized. When Paul started that church right next door to that synagogue, Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, got saved and defected (laughs) to, to Paul's church next door. So, as we're reading on here, we see the Jews replaced Crispus with Sosthenes. And if you know your Bible, you know that he got saved too. And we know that because later on, when the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to these same Corinthians, look how he started it in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, called to be an apostle, and Sosthenes, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth. Well, you know what that means, don't you? That means that Sosthenes not only got saved, he became one of Paul's co-workers in the ministry. And do you remember last week we talked about how embarrassing it was for those Jews to lose their pastor to the church next door. Well, now imagine how embarrassing it was when they lost another pastor to the church right next door. And listen, it was no coincidence that they kept losing their chief rulers. It was no coincidence that they kept losing their spiritual leader, their pastors. You see, the chief ruler of the synagogues in those days would usually be a man who knew the scriptures well, right? And men like that, they would know what it meant when the Christians in the church next door began to speak in tongues. 
they would know that God gave the gift of tongues to Gentiles for a different reason than he gave the gift of tongues to Jews at Pentecost. They knew. God gave the gift of tongues to Jews because of what the prophet Zechariah said about the kingdom of heaven on earth in Zechariah 8, 22 and 23. He predicted in the kingdom many people and strong nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. And in those days it will come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In the kingdom of heaven on earth, Gentiles of all languages are going to want to learn about God. And the only way one Jew with ten men hanging on his skirt is going to be able to talk to ten men hanging on his skirt is with that gift of tongues. So, when it came time for the kingdom to come, God gave the Jews the gift of tongues at Pentecost. The next reference in Acts 2.4, it says, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. So in other words, God gave the gift of tongues to the Jews there as a sign that he was about to bless them with the kingdom. But God gave the Gentiles the gift of tongues as a sign he was judging the Jews, not blessing them. You say, well, how do you know that? (laughs) Well, I know that because of what Paul told the Corinthians when he was explaining why they had the gift of tongues in the first place in your next reference. In... First Corinthians 14.21 As Paul's explaining why they had tongues, he says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak to this people of Israel. And yet, for all that, they will not hear me. When Paul went to explain to these Corinthians why they had the gift of tongues, he quoted something that Isaiah said in Isaiah 28. And if we're going to figure out why the Corinthians had the gift of tongues, we've got to figure out what Isaiah was talking about. In Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, Isaiah said, see if this doesn't sound like what Paul quoted, for with stammering lips, And another tongue will God speak to this people of Israel, yet they would not hear. And what Isaiah was talking about, folks, was how God had been speaking to his people for an awfully long time, telling them that they needed to repent of their rebellion against him. And they just wouldn't listen. 
So God told him, as it were, if you don't want to listen to me when I speak to you in Hebrew, well, then I'm going to have to speak to you in the only language you seem to understand, the language of judgment. I'll let the Babylonians conquer you. And then I'll speak to you in the tongue of the Babylonians. And you know what? He did. I don't know if you remember or not when we studied the book of Daniel not long ago, but half the book of Daniel is not written in Hebrew like all the rest of the Old Testament. Half the book of Daniel is written in Chaldee, the language of the Babylonians. And what's going on there is God was acting like a father to the people of Israel. All you fathers know that when you speak to your boy in plain English and he puts you on the pay no mind list, it's time to break out the paddle and speak to that boy in the only language he understands. The language of punishment. The language of judgment. And that's what's going on here. God even allowed His people to be carried away captive into Babylon. And here's the thing. The Babylonians, they didn't just conquer Israel, folks. They conquered all the nations. So as the Jews were sitting there captive in Babylon, they didn't just hear the tongue of the Babylonians being spoken. They heard the tongues of all the nations who were always coming and going in Babylon. And when those Jews heard the tongues of those nations being spoken there in Babylon, they knew that was a sign that God had judged them just like Isaiah said He would. And here, when Crispus and Sosthenes, who knew all those verses we just looked at well, when they heard the languages of the nations in the Corinthian church next door, they knew that was a sign God was judging them for rejecting their king and rejecting their kingdom. That's why they kept losing chief rulers of the synagogue in Corinth and having them go to Paul's church. They wanted to get away from the people that God was judging and go over there to where the people God was blessing. Now, next. Do you remember what happened when Paul first came to Corinth in your next reference in Acts 18, 1-3. Paul came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila with his wife Priscilla. And because he was of the same craft, it says, he abode with them and wrought, worked with them, for by their occupation they were all tent makers. Remember last week we looked into this and how we saw that when Paul first got to Corinth, he got a job with a couple of tent makers named Priscilla and Aquila. And he must have led them to the Lord while they're sitting there sewing those tents. Because as we read on here, when Paul went to leave Corinth, they decided to go with him. Look at verse 18 in your Bible again. And Paul, after all this, 
tarried there yet a good while. He thought, well, the law's on my side. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to keep preaching here for a while. Uh, and then took his leave of the brethren in the church in Corinth and sailed thence into Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sancria, for he had a vow. Priscilla and Aquila decided to go with Paul and labor with him in the ministry. Uh, they had given him a job, and now he's giving them a job in the Lord's work. <laughs> but uh, what's all this about a vow? says Paul had shorn his head in Sancria for he had a vow. Well, the only vow in the Bible that's associated with shaving your head is that Nazarite vow that we read in Numbers chapter 6 in our scripture reading this morning. So here we have to ask why Paul decided to take a vow that was found in the Old Testament law of Moses when he was out there teaching others that were not under the Old Testament <laughs> of Moses. And the answer is found in what Paul wrote in your next reference in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 22. Paul said unto the Jews... I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews, that I might by all means, even the means of shaving my head, that I might by all means save some of them. So the reason Paul did something so Jewish as to take a vow in the Jewish Bible was to try to gain the Corinthian Jews for Christ. You know, the very same Corinthian Jews who just took him to court and tried to stick the law on him. <laughs> now that's love, folks. I mean, would you shave your head to try to win some skinheads who just took you to court to try to stick the law on you? I don't think I could pull that look off as well as Ray does or some of the rest of you brethren there. But now, if you've got a Schofield reference Bible like we have there in the seats, you'll see that Dr. Schofield, above verse 18, put a heading that says that the author of all these verses takes a Jewish vow. Now, we're not going to take the time to look at all those verses, but I know you know the first one. Because he's quoting Romans 6.14. And what does it say in Romans 6.14? You're not under the law, but under grace. And Paul's taking this Jewish vow found in the law. So why would that be? Why would the very same apostle who said we're not under the law take a vow that's found in the law? It's obvious from Dr. Schofield's note that he thought Paul shouldn't have taken it. And I can understand that because I used to think that way too. I thought that taking a Jewish vow was taking things a little bit too far when it came to becoming as a Jew 
to gain the Jews. But then I remembered what we saw in our scripture reading this morning. That the Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow. It wasn't required by the law. So Paul didn't have to put himself under the law to take the Nazarite vow. I mean, if you think it through, how else could Paul become as a Jew to win Jews without putting himself under the law? He quit eating bacon? That would put himself under the law, wouldn't it? Because the law said, don't eat bacon. If he started wearing clothing of two different kinds, nylon and whatever else, well, the law said not to do that. So if he started doing that, he'd be putting himself under the law. Only a voluntary part of the law, like this vow, wouldn't put him under the law, right? And if you'll go home and check the context there of 1 Corinthians 9, you'll see that when he said he became as a Jew to to win the Jews, you'll see he was talking to the Corinthians about what he did when he was in Corinth. He's talking about how he shaved his head in Corinth to win you Jews. Excuse me. But... The problem with taking a Nazarite vow, as we also saw in our scripture reading this morning, is that it involved an animal sacrifice. And that used to really make me think that Paul goofed when he took that vow because, as you know, animal sacrifices were just types of the sacrifice of Christ. And that's why we, we don't offer them today. But then I remembered all that I've learned since last time I talked, taught the book of Acts, how that in the kingdom of heaven on earth, Ezekiel says that the priests are going to offer sacrifices again, even though they'll know that they were just types of the sacrifice of Christ. So there can't be anything wrong in sacrifices in and of themselves now that Christ died. Now later in the book of Acts, Paul's going to try to offer another animal sacrifice and God is not going to let it happen. So we know that eventually God made it perfectly clear to Paul that he didn't want animals to continue to be sacrificed throughout the dispensation of grace. But here, he didn't stop Paul from offering that animal as we're going to see. And we know that God honored what Paul did here in taking this vow because of what happens right after he takes the vow in the next two verses in your Bible. Let's read verse 19 again and verse 20. uh, It says he came to Ephesus and left them there. We didn't read that yet. I'll read it now. He came to Ephesus and left them there talking about Priscilla and Aquila, left Corinth, came to Ephesus, left Priscilla and Aquila, not left town, but he himself entered into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews, like he always did. And in verse 20, when they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, 
Now, do you notice anything different there in verse 20 about the reception that the Jews in that synagogue gave Paul? How many times have we seen Paul preach in a synagogue and the Jews reject him so violently that a lot of times they wanted to kill him? Or at the very least, run him out of town. But these Jews heard Paul preach and they screamed for an encore. Now, what do you suppose made the difference? Well, I would submit to you it was because he became as a Jew to gain the Jews. Don't forget he was still sporting that chrome dome that proved he took a Jewish vow. And when they saw that, Oh man, they were all ears. Tell us more. It worked. They begged him to stay. But instead of staying in a synagogue where he's finally welcomed, Paul left. As it says there in verse 20, they desired him to tarry and he didn't want to stay. And he left, believe it or not. So he could go and do something also very Jewish. (laughs) Look at verse, now we'll read 20 and 21 again. When they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not, but he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast, Jewish feast, that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, if God will, And he sailed away from Ephesus. Now, go ahead and check all the commentaries you want, and you'll find out. Nobody knows what feast this is. They guess, but they can't prove it from Scripture. I think I can. I think the one, I think the feast that he was thinking, I I, want to keep this feast, is the one you read about in your last reference in John 10.22. It was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication. And the reason I think that that's the feast, that Paul says, i got to get to Jerusalem, keep that feast, is because that feast was not one of the ones required by the Law of Moses in Leviticus 23. It was a voluntary feast. So Paul didn't want to keep that feast so he could put himself under the law. He wanted to keep it because he knew there were Jews in Jerusalem who would see his cue ball noggin. And they would say, hey, get a load of baldy locks. How's that one? Get a load of baldy locks. He's keeping the feast right alongside of us. And they'd be all ears, just like the Jews in Ephesus. But right after saying he had to leave to keep that feast in Jerusalem, as we read on, we see it looks like Paul didn't go to Jerusalem like he said he would. Look at verse 22 in your Bible. And when Paul had landed at Jerusalem, is that how you spell it? But Paul had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church. Well, then he went to Antioch. That's not how he spelled Jerusalem either, is it? So, 
it looks like Paul went everywhere but Jerusalem here. And you know what? When I read it years ago, I'm so geographically challenged that I always thought that he... But you know what? Caesarea was actually the seaport of the city of Jerusalem. It was a... Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. If you were... If you were sailing to Jerusalem, you had to land in Caesarea. And hey, didn't we just read at the end of verse 21 that Paul was sailing to Jerusalem? So he did go to Jerusalem to keep that feast. And that's why verse 22 says he went up and then he went down. Now you know that when we use those words, we talk about going up north or down south, right? But when it says he went down to Antioch, I looked this up too. Antioch's north of Jerusalem. And so you know, well, he's using those words up and down differently than we use them, right? And he was because Jerusalem was what the Lord called a city on a hill. That's why, like I said, you had to have a port down here, Caesarea, and then you could walk up to Jerusalem. Couldn't have a port in Jerusalem because it was a half mile high. (laughs) It was 2,474 feet high to be exact. That's almost half a mile, folks. And that's why 25 times in your Bible this exact phrase up to Jerusalem appears. And four times in your Bible it talks about going down from Jerusalem. So to get to the point, Paul did go to Jerusalem. And not just to keep that feast. He also had to offer his hair in the fire of the sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. Like we read all good Nazarites had to do in our scripture reading in number 6. And the reason Paul decided to sail to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem was 1,200 miles away from Ephesus where he was. And you'd think after sailing 1,200 miles to get there that verse 22 would say he stayed there a while. But as you can see in verse 22, he didn't. He kept the feast burned his hair, said hello to the twelve apostles there in the Jerusalem church, and left for Antioch. So now, what could possibly possess a man to sail 1,200 miles and then just stay for a Jewish feast? Well, listen. After Paul saw how the Jews in Ephesus listened when they saw he'd taken that Jewish vow, he figured, why not go to this feast in Jerusalem where Jews from all over the world could come and see his head and know that he'd taken a vow and think to themselves, oh, you know that, Paul, he's not such a bad egg. egg you know. And then those Jews would go home and tell the Jews in their synagogues that he wasn't such a bad egg. So that when Paul got to their synagogues, they would know, hey, this Paul's not such a bad egg. And they would listen to him like they used to listen to E.F. Hutton. Remember those commercials? Remember those? 
Uh, never mind. Can't go into it, otherwise we'll be here all morning. But that's why he sailed 1,200 miles to keep a Jewish feast. And the reason he stopped in Antioch there at the end of verse 22, what have we learned so far in our study of the book of Acts? Antioch was his home church and the headquarters of the grace movement. And Paul knew that at the headquarters they'd have heard he took this Jewish vow. And they were probably wondering what he was up to. So he stopped at Antioch to make sure they understood why he took the Jewish vow. But before his hair grew back, all the way back in, he had one more place that he wanted to show off his chrome dome. And that's described for us in verse 23. After he had spent some time there in Antioch, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Paul wanted to make sure that the Jews in Galatia uh, knew why he had taken that vow. Because they had, by this time Paul's written his epistle to the Gentiles in Galatia, right? Giving them grief for being under the law. And Paul didn't want those Jews in Galatia to think, well, Paul must have no respect at all for the, for the law. He's telling these Galatians not to, not to believe it, not to follow it. So he had to go back to Galatia and show them that he did respect the law. And folks, that's your final proof that Paul didn't do anything hypocritical in taking that Jewish vow or keeping that Jewish feast. Because if he did anything hypocritical in doing those things, he wouldn't have dared showed his face in Galatia with all those churches that he'd been scolding for going under the law. He wouldn't have done that. If he had, those Gentiles would have called him on it. Called him out for his hypocrisy. And that's how you know he wasn't doing anything wrong here. Now finally in verse 22 when it says that he went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order. That means he he was retracing his steps. Going back to check on all the churches he established. In the order he established them. To do what it says. To strengthen them. He wasn't a deadbeat dad. You hear about deadbeat dads that father children and then just go off and don't care for them. No. He was their father in their faith. He begat them in the gospel. Then he went back to strengthen them, making sure they had everything they need in their spiritual lives. And now, one more thing in closing. Look back at verse 21. You'll notice that Paul promised that he would return to Ephesus God willing. Now, I know Grace believers who don't like that phrase for some reason, but Paul uses it there, and he uses it a couple of other places, and even in one of his prison epistles, his later epistles in Philippians, he talks about, uh, I trust the Lord that this is going to happen and stuff. And that's after the transition period's passed. So I, I personally don't see the harm in saying, if the Lord will. 
It reminds me of how years ago I was typesetting an article for Pastor Stam for the Brand Searchlight. And at the end, he typed out his messages, usually. He had pretty good handwriting, so I could read his handwriting if I had to, but he usually typed them out, and at the end of one of his sentences in this article, he put the letters D period V period. And I asked him, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and he said it's an old Latin phrase meaning Deo Volante. God will. So, I think I'm going to keep using it. Not in Latin. <laughs> in English. How about you? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Apostle Paul and uh, I someday will apologize to him for um, all these years teaching that he did something wrong in taking that vow. And I remember who put me on the right course to seeing that. I remember when Dave Stewart first started coming to our church and I wanted to get to know him better. And so I took him fishing. And I didn't know how shy he was. And as I was, as we're fishing, I was trying to get him talking about this, that, and the other with small talk, and I was getting nowhere. <laughs> now later he was pretty good with small talk, but but finally I just surrendered and started talking about the Bible. And boy, the floodgates opened. <laughs> and he's the one that said, you know, I don't think that Paul was wrong in doing that, taking the vow, going to the feast. And I I can't remember his reasons at the time, if these were the same reasons that I learned later. I just remember, and I thank you, Father, that he put me on the right course. We're thankful, Father, that we don't have to be right every time we open our mouths. We know that if we wait till we're right about everything, we'll never say anything. And we pray that you'd richly bless our little ministry here as we carry on in Dave's absence. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.